Okay, well, I'm excited to talk to you uh, about anxiety again. We've been looking at anxiety. Uh, we looked at Jesus' perspective on anxiety. We looked at Paul's perspective on anxiety. And then we're going to look at, today, Peter's perspective on anxiety. Um, someone asked and said, how many weeks can you preach on anxiety? I said, well, I don't know. How many weeks can I be anxious? And so uh, we can just keep going the more anxiety I seem to get. Uh, next week, I'm thinking about us looking at anxiety from the perspective of God's heavenly angels. Um, but So today, we're going to look at Peter, Peter's perspective on anxiety. If you'll take your Bible, look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. By the way, what great weather today, huh? I mean, man, it's a great day to just be chilling in the car. 1 Peter chapter 5. And look in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses uh, 5 through 11. 5 through 11. This will be our text for today. Peter says this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can you just pray over this text with me before we kind of go into it? Thank you. For another chance to look at your word, your text. It is holy. It is sacred. It, it is giving us what we need to fight the sin of anxiety. So help us in this. Help us to glean and get from your word which you intended the original recipients first to understand. And us 2,000 years later. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're looking. Remember, we looked at Jesus and response perspective on anxiety we look at paul now we're gonna look at peter and what's interesting when you look at this text here is peter here is a guy who actually we have examples of him experiencing anxiety so i find this interesting while he's writing this under the inspiration of the holy spirit of god at the same time i'm wondering to myself is he having any bit of flashback in his life because we have recorded in the gospels several times where peter had some anxiety some worry some anxiousness don't you recall over in matthew 14 where remember when 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 jesus calls him to walk on the water he gets out he's walking on the water he's doing fine but then the wind's still, still kind of blowing and he gets his eyes off jesus he starts to sink and he starts to get kind of the scripture says afraid in that moment what, what what's going on well he's he he's kind of having some worry now now i know there's a difference between fear and anxiety but I will tell you this, anybody who experiences anxiety is really 
They've already experienced fear. Fear is the, the pathway into anxiety and to worry. So Peter, Peter knows what this is like. So I find this interesting. He's writing about how to cast your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. But he knows what this is like. He's experienced this in his own life. So I find that Peter is a great one to look at today and to use because he has firsthand experience with this. Even more so, if you ever look over at Matthew 16, and if you want to, you can, you can look over there. You'll have a little bit of time. Let me read for you another time in Peter's life where he experienced some anxiety. Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, From the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, and he took Peter aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord. Um, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to notice in this time, Jesus is telling his disciples that the cross is coming. Peter gets anxious about this moment rebukes Jesus of it, then Jesus rebukes him back, says, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance. Now, file that away. We're going to talk about that phrase in a little bit. But I want you to see, he says, for you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting things, your mind on the things of man. So admittedly, during this moment, I mean, here's Peter. He's, he, he, he's on the spot. Jesus is rebuking him. You can see Peter. I mean, here's Peter who's dealing with some anxiety. So when Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, here's a man who has experience in this issue and area. Here's a man who actually is, is more than likely experienced some progressive sanctification in this area. Here's a guy who, and, and I will tell you this, sometimes people get down on themselves about the anxiety that they have in life. When I look at Peter, I kind of almost think that he has the gold medal on anxiety. I mean, I've had some anxious moments in life. Don't get me wrong. And there's going to be a lot of us and a lot of people that are kind of anxious, even in our Shelby County, that tomorrow is the official opening update. But I tell you this, no anxiety, no response, sinful response to anxiety, I think even rivals this. I mean, listen, my anxiety at times and worry has been bad, but I have never tried to talk Jesus out of the cross, right? Like, how bad is that? I mean, this... So if you're kind of beating up on yourselves and thinking, man, I'm the worst, like, I don't know. Have you ever tried to talk Jesus out of the cross? I mean, what, this is what Peter's doing in this moment. It's epic. It's a, it's a gold standard of, of actually worry. And yet, Jesus reveals to him something very interesting that fits in with our text. He says, you do not value, you value, you do not value the things, you have your mind, you have set your mind on the, instead of not on the things of God, but the things of man. What is God revealing to Peter? He's saying, Peter, there's a lack of humility in your life. You're more concerned about self than you are the kingdom. You're trying to protect self. Hold that in mind because when you look in the text of 1 Peter 5, you find there is a direct link between being able to target casting our anxiety on Jesus and humility. They're tied together. Even in this incident in Matthew 16, we find that Humility is directly tied to even this anxiety that, that Peter has in the moment. By the way, if you were to look in verse 24, the next verse, 
Jesus even unwinds this to Peter because he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus tells Peter in that moment, in the most subtle way, listen, you value the things of men, not the things of God. If, if anybody's going to come after me, they must deny themselves. Jesus is speaking of humility to him. And I don't find it any coincidence that when you get over to 1 Peter 5, and Peter's writing really to people who are being persecuted for following the Lord, he's basically saying, like, cast all your anxiety, but a, a foundation for that is a humble life, a, a, a life of humility. Here's what humbleness is. A, hu- a humble person is not someone who talks bad about themselves. A humble person is a person who's simply not really concerned with self-protection at all. A humble person is someone who is concerned about the glory of God and the good of others. A humble person is concerned about what they can do to really serve others and serve the kingdom. A humble person is not intrinsically uh, concerned with, self, with self-preservation. Now, that doesn't mean you're never concerned with appropriate forms of self-care like studying the scripture, trying to, trying to exercise so that you have the best health to take care of your responsibilities in life. But, but what he's telling Peter is, Peter, you, you, you're all about self. And when Peter starts to write about anxiety, the direct link to to actually like have being able to cast your cares, there is a direct link to humility that we can see in the text. You know, it's interesting. I in, so Matthew so Matthew 14 happens. He he falls in the water. He has some anxiety. Then 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 Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's going to go to the cross. And then basically he rebukes him, says, hey, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're trying to talk me out of the cross. You're not valuing the things of God. You're valuing the things of man. Hey, deny yourself. So, so Jesus points out some humility. I mean, six days later, by the next chapter in Matthew 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples about humility. So there's a lot of talk about humility. Now, here's what's encouraging. Peter doesn't even get it yet. Although, obviously, he gets it by chapter, by First Peter 5. He got it when he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what happens after this? Do you remember what happened in the garden in John chapter 18 with Peter? You remember when in the garden of Gethsemane they came to get Jesus and Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the high priest, uh, the high priest, um, uh, the servant of the high priest, Malchus's ear. In Matthew 18, it says Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest servant, cut his right ear off. You remember that in the garden of Gethsemane when they came to when Judas brought the people to come and get Jesus, that Peter takes his sword out and is trying to kind of fight because Peter's not valuing the kingdom. He's really valuing this self-preservation. He's valuing his, his own way of thinking. And Jesus had already repeatedly, repeatedly told his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to raise, but I'm going to die. He already clearly laid out the plan of God for him. Peter was it's still, remember Matthew 16, he He rebukes Peter and says, you're not valuing God's plan, you're valuing your plan. And Peter still doesn't get it right yet. In the garden, he's still still about self-preservation. Even so much, you know, later on, he denies the Lord three times. Now, this is why this is a little encouraging to me. Because we always think that we should just get better overnight. That, Lord, why am I still struggling with anxiety? Why am I still worrying? Lord, I had a victory over here. Why am I having a, a, a defeat over here? Why, why am I still struggling in this? Well, because sometimes that's how change works. Sometimes change is overnight, but sometimes change is a process. We see Peter here. He's in process still. I mean, the very Son of God had already rebuked him. But 
He hadn't completely changed yet. But here's the good news. When you are in Christ, you will progressively sanctify. And when you keep going after the Lord, that so much so that when Peter's writing 1 Peter chapter 5, it, now that doesn't mean he's completely sanctified yet, but here's what I, I love. Jesus rebukes him in chapter 16. By John 18, he, he's still not there. However, by this point, he must be much closer. And this is what I love. When we're anxious and we're wondering, when are we going to get over this? It's going to be a process sometimes. Sometimes in life, it's three steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, four steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Now, no one wants to take the step back, but as long as you're taking steps forward, you're still making progress overall. And here's Peter. He knows about the anxiety. He struggles with it. The Savior tells him about it. The Savior even says, you're valuing Satan's kingdom because of your lack of humility. And yet he still struggles with it for a moment, and the Lord knows it. But at some point, you see in 1 Peter 5, it seems like he's got it. He's getting it. He's, he's processed through. This is great news for us. Because we're people who struggle the same way, don't we? We, we sometimes are greatly in process. So I want to lay out this idea from our text today in 1 Peter 5. Humility helps us to cast our cares on the Lord. Humility is what helps us cast our cares on the Lord. It's very difficult to cast our cares on the Lord, to cast anxieties on the Lord without humility. I think that's where there's such a premium in our text. There's a premium in what Jesus had told Peter and I see even in, in my own life, without humility. So, like when a person's humble, life is not about themselves. When life is not about you, you more appropriately think about the kingdom. You more appropriately think about what God wants. And, and when you go to him with anxiety, it's really not just about protecting yourself. It's really about his kingdom and the good of others. And, and there's, so much, there's so much obedience and blessing and, and help in that. But when we are preoccupied with self, when we're just concerned about our own selves, and even when we try to start casting our anxieties on the Lord, but yet the preeminent thought is just self, 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 it's like we, don't have, we can't hit the target. So in the text of 1 Peter chapter 5, if you look at it, he says, Humble yourselves in verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. There's a tie from verse 6 to 7. There's a tie in Matthew 16 with Peter. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I played baseball in high school, and I was, I was semi-decent at baseball. And, and I had a pretty good arm. But no matter how good my arm might have been, it, it wouldn't have mattered if I couldn't hit the target. I mean, you could throw the ball as hard as you can, but it doesn't matter until you hit the target. That's one of the things when, when you're a young, when you're first learning baseball as a young kid, you're really focused a lot of times on just how hard you can throw the ball. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pride and, and just kind of feeling good as a young kid. But really, you're not effective until you can actually hit a target. This is why we sometimes have a hard time casting. That word cast means to hurl. It's like throwing. It's this hurling like you're throwing a baseball. Uh, that, although they didn't have that kind of baseball, they threw stones, but... But this idea of hurling is you're casting, you're throwing intentionally with force. But anytime you throw something and hurl it, you have to have a target to accomplish the purpose. The purpose in our text is that we would hurl, 
cast our anxieties on him. But I don't think that'll happen without that position of humility. So let's kind of look at just a couple things about humility in, in our own lives from the text. Take up and look in verse number five. First, we, we want to see this. Humility. This, this idea of life is not, humility is not making too much of yourself or too low of yourself. It's just not making life about self at all. Okay, that's humility. It, and it's, it's tough. A person may say, am I a humble person? It's hard to really know if you're humble. It really is. The only way sometimes to know if humility exists in your world is that if others would testify to it, but it's hard to know it intrinsically for yourself because a humble person wouldn't even really be asking that question. A humble person's not, a humble person is just concerned about God's glory, his kingdom, and the good of others. That's not a, a question he's really putting towards himself. So that when, when an anxious and worrisome time comes, a person who's walking in humility, they don't really think a lot about self-preservation. They just go to casting that directly on the Lord, and they have an accurate target with how they're hurling that because humility helps you to hit the target right. Now, look at verse 5. He says this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility one towards another. So he's, he's pointing out, like, you need to... Humility towards others is this pathway of you being able to cast your anxieties on the Lord. Humility towards others. Now, it's interesting. That word, clothe yourself, that word clothe has the idea of tying something on. Now, in their day, that tying on would typically refer to an apron. An apron is, is, is something that a servant would wear. So when that servant wore that apron, it, it, it protected their clothing. Now, what's interesting, in their day and age, being a servant wasn't actually a popular thing. So don't think that, that this is... Um, don't think that this is a positive thing for the general culture. Which, by the way, here's just a side note. People always say that the Bible's making up things, that people made this up um, to trick people into believing that this, there's this resurrected Jesus. I will tell you this. If you were making up a religion in first century Jerusalem, if you were making up this in the ancient culture, and you talked about humility, you were a stupid cult leader, all right? You would never talk about humility and go, hey, join up with this group because it's all about being a servant. That Being a servant was seen as a bottom-rung thing. That's just a, that's free. You didn't have to pay for that, for that idea. So he comes in and when he talks about this, he says, hey, make sure that you clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. But put on the apron of humility. Now, what's interesting about this, I've got an apron at home. It's disgusting looking. It's, got, it's been used and washed so many times. It's of a Texas flag. Because you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the boy. And so what's interesting about this apron is that this apron could fit almost anybody. I mean, it may look bigger or smaller on the person, but the way aprons are made, you don't really go to the store and get, I need a small size apron. I need a medium apron. I need an extra large apron. I need a, a triple uh, a triple X kind of, uh, triple XL kind of apron. No, an apron is one size fits all. In the text, with this apron, clothe yourselves, is something only servants, because an apron is meant to be a one size fits all kind of thing. Humility is a one size fits all kind of thing. So he starts off and says, I want you to clothe yourselves, all of you with humility one towards another. I can tell you this, I think humility is most seen in how we do it towards others. Now, directly in the text, in context, it's talking about having humility towards elders and pastors. It's, it's this thing where, like, actually in the, the context, like, 
pastors are supposed to be examples to the sheep, and, and sheep are to follow their examples, and sheep are to practice actually submitting to, to eldership. I would tell you this, it, it, like uh, Christians aren't in, in biblical obedience if they're not a part of some kind of church where, where they can be in submission to, to pastoral elders. I mean, that, that, that's off kilter with God's word. But, but let's go with a wider application because it is speaking in the context of elders, this humility one towards another, but it's a general principle all throughout Scripture. When, when we are concerned about other people in our life first, when we're concerned about sub, serving others, that's the sign of humility. This is the people that are going to be able to fight anxiety the best, have a humility towards others. That's why he says, clothe yourself. Tie on the apron with humility one towards another. Now remember, the context is elders, but this can go to anybody. If you want to fight anxiety, there has to be humility towards other people. When other people become more important than yourself, you are positioning yourself to hit the target of casting all your anxieties on the Lord. You're, you're, you're positioning yourself in a great way. Which, by the way, here's a great some self-reflection questions. Does the way I live life seem to put others before myself? Do, do the way you treat your siblings, does this show that you prefer them above yourself? The way you respond to your spouse, does it show that you re- prefer them above yourself? The way you respond to your parents and the, the rules they have for the house, does this show that you prefer them above yourselves? Do you delight in serving other people above yourself? Do you delight in serving others and doing for others even if you get no kind of positive reinforcement in return? You know, sometimes in life we actually do for others because we're hoping they'll do for us. But what about when we do for them and and nothing happens positive in return? I would say this. Humility towards others puts you in a position where you can actually hit the target of casting your care upon the Lord for he cares for you. Humble people serve other people. And that, that the, the, the beauty of serving other people is you are positioning yourself where Peter is at that you can actually have less anxiety. The, less, the, most, the least anxious people are the people who serve others the most. Not only that, look in our text. So we see this humility towards others is going to help you hit the target of casting your cares on the Lord. But look in verse 6. Humility, trust in God's power, okay? Look at verse 6. He says this, so that at the proper time, he, he may exalt you. At the proper time, he may exalt. I'm sorry. I went ahead. Go back to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So a humble person is, is walking in service towards others, helps them to hit that target of, of casting their cares on the Lord. And a humble person trusts God's power. A humble person knows that God is in control. He's wise. He's loving. He's good. And, and the, more they, the more they know that God is in control of everything, that helps them to actually cast those cares on the Lord. When they know that he's in control and good and wise and loving, even when they don't understand a situation, they know that they can cast that care. They can hit the target. I'm just telling you this. A person who does not have the humility to trust that God's in control but thinks they're in control, that person is not able to deal with anxiety very well. That person cannot hit that target. They do not know how to cast it on the Lord. 
What's interesting is there's this theology of what's called deism. Deism is God created all, spun the world, and it's just going along with the natural laws of nature. And I would say this. I'd never sleep well at night and never be able to cast my anxieties if I believe God was not was only partially in control and not completely in control. I can tell you unequivocally, God is in control of coronavirus. None of this has happened haphazardly. This is all according to his plan. Now, I can't answer for man's side on that and, and where, he has, where he has done to contribute to this, but I can tell you this, none of this, I, I don't sleep well at night, nor can I read my Bible faithfully thinking God does not have absolute power and control over this. When a person is walking in humility, not only are they serving others, but they also have this unflinching trust in God's power and sovereignty. This is why he says in the text, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When a person does this, I'm telling you, it is humbling to trust God's power than our own power. It is a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to admit that, God, I'm frail and I'm weak. And even anything that I even get to do today is all a response of your grace. It's really none of me. Even the talents and ability and the job I do, anything I do, any success in life isn't really because of me. It's all a result of your power. That person who can do that, walk in that kind of humility, that it's God's power that does everything, that person can hit the target of actually casting all your anxiety on the Lord. The person who walks otherwise trusting in their own selves, they can try to cast, but they'll never be able to cast it towards the Lord. They'll always try to cast their anxieties in the wrong place, which typically is just more, more exalting of my own self. Number three in our text. So we see if a person is going to cast their anxieties on the Lord, there's humility towards others. There's this humility of trusting God's power. And then there's this humility, number three, of trusting God's timing. Look at verse six. So that the proper time he may exalt you. So our text tells us in verse 6. I'll just give you a little read of it here again. He says in, in verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you at the proper time he may exalt you. Now the scriptures over and over tell us. That if we exalt ourselves he'll humble ourselves. If we'll humble ourselves, he will exalt us, right? Now, here's the problem we, we run into many times. Sometimes we grow impatient with, Lord, when are you going to exalt me? When is this going to happen? Like, Lord, I keep taking my beatings here. I, things keep getting difficult. When's this going to happen? I, I would say, friend, when we start doing that, we're actually showing that we're not walking in humility. That A humbleness, a humbleness knows this, that that God will, God will exalt when his time is right. God will do when his time is the right time. God is rarely ever early, but he's never late. He is always on time. A humble person has this idea they know this. This is why only humble people can actually persevere a long time in persecution. Because they know that persecution may, is, may last a long time. And if it lasts a long time, it's all in God's hands. So what I love in the text, he says, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. I love Titus 1 and verse 2 through 3. It talks about our salvation and it says this, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time, manifesting in his word through the preaching of which I've been entrusted. 
God brought Jesus in at the perfect time. God does everything in our lives at the perfect time. Only a humble person can actually trust God's timing for exaltation. The promise of Scripture is this. Living in humility will always result in our exaltation. But when that's going to happen, that's not up to us. And if a person is truly walking in humility, they don't ask themselves that question. It's not, it's not a question for them to ponder over and over and over of like, Lord, okay, I'm being humble, but, but when is this going to be over? Now, that doesn't mean a person can't come and lament and say to the Lord, Lord, this is difficult. It hurts, but I trust you. But it's the person who says, Lord, I'm going to walk in this humility in this relationship, but I'm only doing this for six more months because after six more months, that's over. I've given you all your opportunity, God. That person will never be able to cast their anxieties on the Lord because they're not going to be able to hit the target. Only with humility can a person hit the target of casting anxiety on the Lord. So we see that there's this humility towards others, this humility in trusting God's power, this humility in trusting God's timing. This helps us to cast our anxieties on the Lord, hit the target. Number four, humility trusts God's care. Trusting God's care helps us to hit this target. Look at verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When a person is, is walking in humility, they're not looking out for number one. In fact, um, the, the, the best hat I ever had uh, years ago, it was this kind of a joke between me and some friends. There was this old Saturday Night Live uh, skit where... Um, where, where on Saturday Night Live, they were this guy named Will Farrell. He was doing kind of a sketch comedy. You know, there's kind of these things on TV, like people create hats and T-shirts. And so they did a sketch comedy where, uh, where these people basically made a big fishnet hat that said, I'm number one. And uh, it was like a little commercial on SNL that like, you know, come buy a, a hat that says I'm number one so that when you walk out in life, everybody can know you're number one. And so it was a joke that we always joked around about. Well, for my uh, bachelor party, um, w- w- that's, that's what I had to wear my whole entire bachelor party. They got me a hat that said, like, I'm, I'm number one, right? Well, well here's the deal. That was, that was just some comedy that we did that. But in life, when we really think that, we're, we're not in a position to know that God cares for us. What happens is this. Humble people are concerned about themselves. Humble people think they're number one. And when we think we're number one, we'll doubt his care. Why is that? Because we think our care is better. That's actually how it happens. When we have this number one mentality, we think, Lord, I know the best way to take care of myself. You don't know what you're doing. Like, I know the best way. And that person who thinks they know best how to care for themselves will never be able to hit the target of casting their anxieties on the Lord. And only a humble person can actually say this. A humble person knows that, that God is the one that cares for them because they're not about protecting themselves. In fact, this is what I love about humility. When a person walks in humility, they're not thinking about themselves. It's about God's glory and the good of others. They're not about all this self-protection. They're not about all this self-exaltation. And what happens to these people is sometimes in life they get stepped on. And those people have this strong and flinching trust in God's care for them. Like the only, t- only way a person can do that is to go like, Lord, you're the one that has to take care of me. Now listen, don't walk away from this thinking that I'm promoting some kind of 
abuse of any sort. That's a whole different category. What I'm talking about is this preserving self-exaltation. I'm number one. I know what's best for me. You don't know what's best for you. And a humble person actually admits that. A humble person knows that. And a humble person sets themselves up to hit the target of casting all of our anxieties on the Lord. So here's what we see. Humility. In Matthew 16, Peter didn't have humility yet. That's why he, that's why he told the Lord, like, don't go to the cross. Humility is why Peter's cutting off the, the, the ear of the, of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Humility is why, why, why Peter's protecting his own interests and denying Jesus three times. Humility is what's keeping him in that anxious state. But Peter learns his lesson through a process, through a hard, arduous process. He learns his lesson, and we come to 1 Peter 5, and we find this connection between humility and being able to hit the target of casting, throwing our cares, all of our anxieties on the Lord, and knowing that he cares for us. Now, it's interesting. Look at this word, casting. This word casting in verse 7 in the Greek is an aorist principle, a participle, okay? An aorist participle, which basically means this. It's like kind of a snapshot event. Meaning, how do we, when, if, we're, if we're walking in humility, there's going to be repeated snapshot events where we're going to cast our cares on the Lord, where we're going to be at the hit that target. So don't think to yourself, oh, I have this one time in life, I threw all my cares on the Lord, and that's it. No, friend, it's going to be many snapshot events. This will be many times where you're going to be throwing the ball, and you're going to be trying to hit that target accurately. And the way to keep hitting that target, to cast anxieties, is humility. That's the pathway. But it's an aorist participle. It's a snapshot event. It's a continued thing that's going to happen. I think the best way for me to illustrate what this actually looks like, because right now I've, I've kind of just given the, the, I guess, the, the principles of this. But let me give you the example of this. There's a guy by the name of George Mueller, okay? George Mueller. George Mueller and his wife, Mary, are, are, are well known in kind of the history of, of great Christian ministry and missions. George Mueller and his wife in the 1830s opened up in England an orphanage with about 30 girls. By, by 1870, that orphanage had grown to close to 2,000 girls and boys. What's interesting is this. George Mueller and his wife, they opened this orphanage, started with 30 girls. He was a pastor in England. He, he saw the extreme poverty, the, the, the amount of orphan kids, and, and he wanted to do something about it. He, he was a humble man. It wasn't about himself. He was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing not to serve his own self. And he wanted to do something about it. So he, he started opening this orphanage. He started with one. It eventually grew to five. In fact, he had built five orphanages, all debt-free, all from money that had been donated. And one of the things that, that George Mueller, a principle he lived by, was that he never asked people for money. He never even took a salary from his church. He, he didn't ask for a salary. He didn't ask people for money. When he needed something, he went to the Lord. That's what he did. He went and prayed and asked the Lord for those resources. Now, I, I want you to bear in mind something. George Mueller, 
Starts with 30 girls in orphanage, doesn't have the money to do it. Then eventually grows it to five orphanages, serving 2,000 kids, doesn't have the money to do it. Doesn't have the money to do it the whole time. The whole time never asked people for a dime. Every time they had a need, he goes to the Lord. Now, let me read for you a couple stories of how that worked out. You might be wondering, how does that even work? How does a person do that? Well, look, let me give you one story. There's one story, which, by the way, if you want a good book to read, just go get a biography on George Mueller and his life. It'll, it'll do more for you than any Netflix special or Netflix documentary, okay? Do, do more for you. Do more than any kind of Netflix binge. There's this one story where it's in the beginning days of George Mueller and his wife. They have about 30 kids. He's in his study, just studying away. And his wife comes in and says to him, George... We do not have any milk for the oatmeal in the morning for all the kids. We don't have the resources for it. Remember, he didn't ask people for money. He just prayed whenever they had an issue. So it says in the story, he puts down his pen in his study. He gathers his wife and the two staff they have at the time in the orphanage. And they begin to seek the Lord in prayer. Which, by the way, if you remember last week with Paul, you were, it says that if you have anxiousness, go to the Lord in prayer. Go with supplication. What, go with the Lord with the exact immediate need. Be thankful and watch the peace of God that passes all understanding. So George Mueller, his wife, the two people, the two staff in the, in the orphanage that they had at that time, they go to the Lord in prayer and start praying to him. After, and, and by the way, their prayer includes thankfulness, by the way. <laughs> and then shortly after they say the amen, they get a knock on the orphanage door. Someone comes in hands them an envelope. They open it up. It's just enough money to buy the milk for tomorrow morning for the orphan's oatmeal. And in fact, after that, two more envelopes show up. I read another story where at the orphanage that there was one time, this is later on when they had many, many more kids. It was breakfast time. And where they were at that day was they didn't have any resources. They had nothing to eat for breakfast. And They asked George what we should do. And what George said is, bring all the kids down. Let's sit down. Let's sit down at the table, even though we don't have anything to give them right now. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to pray and thank the Lord for our food. And we're going to trust the Lord. So that's what they do. They go to praying. They thankfully, they ask the Lord for what they need. They pray over it. And right as they say the amen, they get a knock at the orphanage door. It's the local bread maker bringing bread for them. The Lord just laid it on that bread maker's heart. There's enough bread. And not only that, outside the orphanage, the, uh, the milk delivery cart for that day had broken down. The milkman comes in because his cart was broke and couldn't deliver milk for that day, wheels the rest of the milk over to the orphanage that day. Isn't it amazing how the Lord just took care of them? Now, now here's the deal. People will sell, say to me all the time, Well, the reason George Mueller did that is because he had such great faith. And I would say, yes, that's true. But even when you read some things about George Mueller's life, he never acted like, I mean, he talked about how faith was essential to his prayer life, but he didn't act like he had this, the particular gift of the prayer of faith. He, he was, he was just a man who went to the Lord and was dependent. But here's what I want you to to, to know. Yes, he had great faith in the Lord. But I think what was key to that great faith is the humility that George had. The humility that he would give his life to serve others. 
he would inconvenience himself for others. And then because he was walking in such humility in the moment, when it came time, he knew how to cast his anxieties. George Mueller knew how to hit the target of it. Almost anybody else wouldn't. Almost anybody else might have walked out into the streets and began to rustle up, or anybody else would have started writing letters, and anybody else would have started begging donors for money, like, listen, the kids don't have any milk tomorrow. Like, what are we going to do? Listen, the kids are here for breakfast. We don't have the resources we need. But George Mueller, a man who's walking in humility, because he walked in humility, he was able to hit the target of casting all your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. George Mueller was able to go, the Lord cares for me and he cares for these kids. We're at need right now. Let us just go to him. Let us throw it at the target of casting it on the Lord. That's how he did it, guys. In fact, I read up that that's still how they do it today. Even, even those orphanages are still running that, that his namesake. And they still don't ask people for donations. They're still praying and trusting the Lord for what comes in. But humility was an essential part of that. This is why humility is the apron. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter your age. Humility. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a younger sibling and you've got older siblings. Opportunity to be humble before them. If you have, if you're an older sibling, younger, opportunity to be humble towards your parents. Opportunity to be humble. Parents towards children. Opportunity to be humble in the workplace. Opportunity to be humble. Humility is the essence of the life of what Jesus was. Humility is what the cross was all about. When you read Philippians 2, you find that humility is what took Jesus to the cross. Jesus did not count equality with God for something for him to be grasped to. He, he was willing to go to the cross, suffer the wrath of God. Why? Because it wasn't about him. It was about God's glory and the good of the salvation of man. So we find here in our text that we're going to fight anxiety it cannot be fought by just throwing it wildly. There has to be a life of humility that undergirds everything. There has to be a Christ-centered life. This is why Jesus is our model and example. People all the time, it, you know what's interesting in our culture? We are so caught up on uh, something called personality tests. I don't know if you ever had to take one of these, but most of you for the jobs you've had to take, there's been a personality test that they've given you, and Christians get so hung up on it. I don't have time to give you my soapbox, but I, I, I think they're a terrible way for you to evaluate what you should be like. The way we evaluate what a normal person is like is Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is his life was a life of humility. It was a life of, it was about the glory of God and others' good, not about myself. There was no self-protection. And the greatest moments of what would seem like anxiousness for Jesus, he was able to cast his anxiety on the Lord. He was able to hit the target. I can tell you this. Any one of us here, you'll never be able to hit the target of casting our care unless Jesus is first your Lord and Savior. Like, like that's prerequisite. So like before you even seek humility, you won't even get there. First is you need the one who was humble to start off with. You need Jesus. You've got, you've got to come to the realization that your sin has put you in cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven. And the only way to be in right relationship with the God of heaven is to admit your sinfulness. You're deserving of God's justice and judgment. And you cry out to him in faith and repentance. And, and as you become a follower of him, now you can seek that pathway of humility. And now as a follower, you can actually now cast anxiety on him. 
But I promise you, friend, no amount of medication, no amount of talk therapy will ever get you to a position of less anxiety without Jesus. And none of it will ever get you without this idea of humility in a thankful prayer, casting it back to the Lord. Now, I said something, I was going to come to something here at the end of the message. Do you remember back in Matthew 16, we read a while ago, remember when Jesus said to Peter, hey, I'm going to the cross, and Peter tries to talk him out of it. Then he says, get behind me, Satan. Which, by the way, if you've ever been rebuked, what worse rebuke from Jesus could there ever be than that one, right? I mean, like, what? I, I mean, if you've ever felt like, man, I got, I got raked over the coals on this one. Man, I don't know. I, I think Peter kind of takes it. Man, I love Peter. He's a guy we can all identify with. I sometimes have called Peter... He's, he's the guy with the peppermint sock. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. Like, I love this guy. What great identification there is with this guy. Now, it's interesting. When you go back and look at Matthew 16, and Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan, to Peter, for you are a hindrance to me. Then he says, You've set your mind on not the things of God, but the things of man. He says, There's no humility. Then Jesus talks about denying self. But I do want to point this out. Humility is that pathway for us to hit the target of casting our anxieties on the Lord and knowing that he cares for us. Without humility, it won't happen. But uniquely, I want you to understand, one of the ways that we are most modeling the life of Satan is when we're worrying, okay? Just hang with me for a second. We most model Jesus in our humility. We most model a way, a life that's given over to Satan when we are worry, worrisome and anxious. Because when we're worrisome and anxious, we're actually concerned about our kingdom, not God's kingdom. And when we're worried about our kingdom, it's really because we've got pride. The opposite of humility is pride. The opposite of pride is humility. What was unique about Satan is that his fall from heaven was because of his pride. He wanted to exalt himself. Why would God tell Peter in that moment, get behind me, Satan, for your hindrance to me? It's not because Peter was actually satan himself it's that peter's peter is because peter basically was putting on the fishnet head hat of i'm number one at the moment and he meant it not as a joke but as serious peter's saying i'm number one and jesus is saying that's satanic you're not valuing my kingdom you're valuing your kingdom now it's interesting come back to our text of first peter five take a look at it first peter five now look at verse six humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that he at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him before, because he cares for you. So we've already talked about this. this all these different, different evidences of humility, how it'll help you hit the target of casting your anxiety on the Lord. But then notice, in our same text, it's still tied in. He says something interesting. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Who can be sober-minded and watchful? Those that are humble. And then he says this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. Now, what's interesting is this. Over Matthew 16, when Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of the cross, Jesus points out his lack of humility, denying self, but then he also points out that this is satanic, what you're doing. This making yourself number one is actually, this is following the example of Satan, of pride, instead of, following the example of Jesus, which is humility. Now, what's interesting, he just talks about humility and says this is how you're going to hit the target. And then verse 8, 
I want you to be sober-minded and watchful the, the, because the, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring liking, seeking whom he may devour. You've got to resist him firm in the faith. What, what, is, what, is, what is the text telling us? Well, when you compare it to Matthew 16 and you see what God did in Peter's life, what you find is this. A person who gives in to worry and anxiety, it's because there's a lack of humility. And when we give in to this anxiety and worry, we're actually modeling the life of Satan. Not that Satan is a, a direct anxious person. We're modeling this idea of a prideful exaltation of self. And what's interesting, I don't know a lot about like, like hunting. Well, I do. Like in life, I've missed more deer than I've ever hit, right? But I'm pretty sure that when a lion is going to catch something, it's a bad idea for a lion to go running his mouth before he's going to go for his kill. It, it would seem reasonable that a lion would try to be quiet and sneak up on his prey so that he can snatch him and get it. But look in the text. Is Satan, is, his, is, his, is he trying to be real quiet in what he's doing or is he a roaring lion? Well, why would a lion roar? So that he could frighten his prey. Why would a lion be so boisterous so he could frighten them off? Here's what Satan tries to do with us. Satan wants us to get to worry and, and, and to be worrisome and anxious. And I can tell you this, looking at our text, one of the ways we're modeling, modeling an attribute of Satan would be when we are most worrying. Because when we are most worrying, we're most exalting of ourself. And this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to walk around roaring. See, a lot of people think to, to, to act satanic is to go to a spirit dinner or to graffiti pentagrams all over your driveway like that would be satanic and yes that would be but really the way that satan really wants to come at us is he wants us to doubt god he wants us to morally sin against god and the most subtle ways that satan attacks us and then we let him attack us is that we let his roaring lion this idea of being anxious and worrisome distrusting god putting ourself number one putting our own agenda ahead of his not being able to hit the target of casting our anxiety. Instead of going to him in thankful prayer, we go to him in this worrisome kind of attitude. This is what Satan wants to do. And verse 9 tells us what to do. Resist him. Resist him. Firm in the faith. See, this is, this is where kind of George Mueller comes back in again. Why did George Mueller, I think, fight Satan so well, have what was able to fight the anxiousness and worrisome? Like, I don't know about you, but Having a couple thousand orphans that I don't have a large bank account to take care of, and we're sitting at a table with not many resources, and we're, we're praying over our meal that hadn't even hit our plates yet, doesn't even seem to be in the building, that would be a tremendous temptation for worry and anxiety. But I would tell you this, a person who walks in humility already is on the front line of fighting the pride that, that exemplifies Satan's kingdom. And that person is able to have great faith. And that great faith that George Mueller had was a result also of the humility that he had. And when you put humility and faith together, they are, they are an extremely effective attack against worry. Guys, we see it in our text right here. We're not making this up. The, the ability by faith to resist them is, directed, is directly dependent on humility. That, that, that humility and faith, they work together. They help you to hit that target of casting all your anxiety on the Lord. Just look at the rest of the text even. He says in verse 9, 
Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he just says, listen, that suffering that you're that, that, that you're going through, others are going through it right now. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I want you to notice verse 10. Basically what he's saying is this. Cast all your anxieties on him. Know that in God's timing it'll happen, and God will strengthen you. He will bring you to his eternal glory. He will establish you. Like others are suffering just like you, and God knows it, but he cares for you. In his timing, he will take care of this. And the verse 11 in the end, to him be dominion forever and ever. It, it, so he just says, hey, exalt him, live in humility before him. Know that in his timing, he'll bring this about. And in, in the end, it's going to be his kingdom. So you find even Peter here is laying it out for us. I mean, so clear here. So Peter tells us, this is how you fight anxiety. You walk in a humility before the Lord. It'll give you the accuracy to cast your anxieties. It'll help you to resist Satan and stand firm in the faith. And isn't that striking? There's a lot of sin in our life that we would feel like, you know, there's a lot of red flag sins that we all struggle with, right? But we often don't see anxiety and worry as a red flag sin. It's kind of like, Lord, if I can stop being so greedy, if I can control my mouth, like, man, I will be on a sanctified life. And, and we would just pass off as respectable anxiety and worry. But it's interesting. The pride that worry comes from most exemplifies the, the, the character of Satan. Isn't that striking and convicting? That God doesn't wink at our worry. God doesn't wink at our worry and anxiety like, like we're some, like, like he's some grandpa and we're his mischievous grandkids and boy, they can get away with everything now. Like God is, is thoroughly wanting us to repent and give us something better. He wants to give us himself. Thank you for just an opportunity for us to talk about this. Now, here's what we're going to do. Tyler's going to come and going to lead us in a song of worship. And I'm going to do a, um, a uh, after party here, which just means after, after Tyler comes and leads us in a time of worship, I'm going to jump up here with my phone. And any questions or insights that come in about this, I'm going to just, I'm going to go like we've done in, in, in several weeks. So, if you're watching this online and maybe you've got some insights to humility, maybe you got something to add from the text, or maybe you got a question about anxiety, text it to my phone number, 901-304-9979, 901-304-9979. Most everybody has my number. You can in your cars, text it. And I'm just going to start answering them and go through them. I'm going to stay right here. Uh, listen, if you're in your car... Don't feel obligated that you have to stay here. If you want to pull off after that, you can. If you want to stay here, that's fine. But I'm going to come up after this song, and I'm going to, I'm going to reply to any questions that come into my cell phone or insights. You can stay here, but don't feel like, oh, man, I walked out in the middle of the service, okay? So we'll come and sing, and then I'll pray. And if you want to leave, go ahead. And I'm just going to continue the after party, whether you're here or not. Does that make sense? Okay, would you pray with me? Thank you for a chance to sing back to you and strengthen our faith 
and humble dependence on you. Help us, because we're in a time where we're so tempted about anxiety and worry. We're tempted by number one. Release us through your grace and through the example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.